All right, so back in Ephesians 4, we're going to continue on, and today we're actually going to finish the rest of Ephesians chapter 4, and then over the next coming weeks, as we get into chapter 5, you're going to see how the imperatives of Ephesians apply to your life as a married couple. Really important, the most referenced chapter in the Bible on marriage, hands down, throughout the last two millennia, and probably one of the most misunderstood and also one of the ones that's used by non-believers as leverage against believers as well because we're going to start using words like submit and people who don't understand what it means to submit themselves to one another really get wound up around the definition of that word and not how it actually plays out in a marital relationship so we'll get into that stuff um, and it's going to be, it's actually a really exciting study. And if you haven't gone through it deliberately before, you're going to see that it is going to be a place you can go back to in your marriage regularly to help you understand what it means to serve one another. Um, but today we'll finish Ephesians four and we'll go from verse 25 to verse 32, which is a pretty big chunk of verses, but you'll see that these all go together and that they will work well together to get us to a place where what I think is a whole new perspective. That's what, if I was going to put a title on it, I'd say, what is the perspective that you have <clears throat> on the way that Christ comes out in your walk? So the way that you act, the way that you talk, the way that you love your wife, your kids, the way that you treat the people at work or around you, and you're going to see that this plays out quite well. And it's a matter of looking at Christ and what he did as a way at looking at the way that we spend our lives. So it's the perspective. We don't just do it because we're trying to act like Christians. We do it because it's a response to what Christ did for us. So we left off last week, always a recap, right? Because we want to have um, a good starting point. We left off last week talking about putting off the old self, putting on the new, and we're called by Christ to set the old man aside, and we're new creations, as Paul told us, and we referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're new creations in Christ. So remember, we play an active role in that process that we call <coughs> sanctification, right? And these terms Paul's are using uh, are a call to change, right? to be convicted by our newness in Jesus Christ and a desire to be a new person, a desire to walk a new walk, to live a new life. Um, and if you're anything like me, you really abhor open-ended commands. I, I like deliberate command, knowing what the mission is instead of just, you know, go be a new person. Well, what does that mean? It's very easy, I think, um, for the contemporary church to just give very open-ended commands. Go love people. Well, what does that mean to love people? You guys know this. Sometimes loving people, knowing where all of you work or have worked, sometimes loving people means the hard right, right? It means telling somebody they're wrong. It means telling somebody they need to fix what they're doing. It means telling somebody that what they're doing is going to lead to disaster. Sometimes love is the hard right. So, like I said, if you're anything like me, I want to know. Give me the steps. If I'm doing something wrong, tell me I'm doing something wrong. And if I'm doing something right, it, it's okay to tell somebody they're doing something right as well, okay? So, um, 
we've heard quite a bit from Paul since the beginning of chapter 4 about what not to do. And how are we supposed to look and act and think, but what are we supposed to do? Now that we know what not to do, how not to live, how not to walk, what are we supposed to do? And we're going to get into some of that today. So he's going to get into some very specific things with his imperative statements about Christian conduct. And that's what we'll go over today. So let's start in chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 25. And we'll just read all the way to the end of the chapter, which will be verse 32. And Paul wrote this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It's a big chunk there, a lot of stuff. But as you can tell as you read it, he's saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. This is the road to success. This is the way that Christians treat each other, love each other, act with one another. They don't lie. They don't steal. They do these things, right? Sometimes we don't like being told what to do. Well, guess what? There are some things that we should do as Christians. There are ways that we should act. There are words that we should not use and words that we should use as we edify the body of Christ, as we glorify God. So it is, it's truly okay to be told what to do. Otherwise, if you don't know what to do, then what do you do? Like I said, I, I really don't like, I abhor open-ended commands, go love people. Well, how? How do I do that? Especially as we come into the marriage portion, how do you love your wife? What does that mean? What are my expectations of my wife's response to me? And what should my wife's expectations be of me? So he begins this section, Paul, as he writes, with a very basic truth about conduct of believers, right? Putting away falsehood, setting, setting aside things that are not true to our, and our neighbors so that it reminds us all the fundamental truth of faith from Exodus 20. And we're going to talk about this just for a minute. And since falsehood is more than just lying, it's really about living uh, a completely open and honest life. It's about your brothers and sisters, your wives, your husbands, your kids, being open with all of them. And there's a whole bunch of verses from Exodus 20 that are going to apply to what it means to not live a life of falsehood, to be truthful in everything. You guys have heard these before. Bear with me as we go through them. So Exodus 20, verse 3. It's the first commandment. You guys remember the Ten Commandments? You ever heard of these before? We'll go through these, but it's going to be a couple of years maybe. If we're still doing this all together then. The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. See, you tell your brothers and sisters that you're a believer. You tell the people around you that you're a believer, but what do you put before God? What do you put before God? What in your life right now is more important than your faith? 
the faith of your spouse and where your children will go when they die. So are you living a life of falsehood? Are you telling people you're a believer, but you don't live like it? You don't believe like it? You don't talk like it? You don't love your wives like it? You don't bring your kids up in the word of God? You don't read the Bible to them, with them, study with them? Falsehood. Exodus 20, verse 7, right, is the third commandment. I'm still talking about falsehood. You shall not take the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. So what does that mean? Oftentimes people relate this to using cuss words, right? As about, you know, you know the cuss words. We don't need to go over them. But is that really taking the, I don't think it's tasteful. I think it's blasphemous, but it doesn't necessarily mean taking it in vain. But are you using God as a lifestyle? I think is more taking God's name in vain, right? Do you like Jesus culture, Jesus t-shirts, Jesus music, but don't walk the Christian walk? Are you surrendering daily as a result of his work on the cross? Right? That's taken the, the Lord's name in vain, is I tell people I'm a believer, but I don't live or act or talk or walk like a believer. On next to Exodus 20, verse 14, another commandment. This is the seventh. It says, you shall not commit adultery. Now, this is a big one, right? Are you faithful to your spouse? In what you watch, right? In what you do, how you interact with others. Do you speak well of them in front of your friends and coworkers? This has got to be one of my biggest pet peeves ever. I work with people who do not speak well of their significant other openly in a way that, I mean, it makes my skin absolutely crawl that you would stand next to somebody and say vows and promise to love them and serve them forever and then around your buddies whom you have no promise to. I mean, let's be honest, the guys that you work with, you have no dedication truly, personally, intimately to them, but you're willing to slander that person that you've made intimate promises to with these people that are tr truly kind of insignificant comparatively, right? So are you faithful to your wife? Do not commit adultery. Exodus 20, verse 16 is the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. <laughs> wow. Um, are we open and honest with our fellow believers? So are we open and honest with our fellow believers? Do we hold them in judgment when they need it? Right? So are you going to be that person when you have fellow believers who are speaking poorly of their wives, maybe drinking too much, maybe getting into some drugs on the side, maybe not treating their kids well, stopping places they shouldn't on the way, their way home from work, whatever it is that they do that you know is not consistent with the Christian lifestyle, will you be that person that says, you're doing it wrong? Remember, sometimes being good brothers and sisters, husbands and wives is reminding people things they should not do, Right? And also, are we humble when we need to be? Not bearing false witness goes along with having other gods before me. Are we humble when we need to be? It's God that does all the work. It's God that gives all the grace. It's God that died on the cross. We put ourselves in a position of humility where we understand that we don't do anything. Um, all we have to do is receive that grace. We're never boastful in any way. See, being truthful is a consistent message across the text um, that you'll see. 
And all of these things have roots in the Old Testament. You see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are so consistent with one another. And we just saw a few of these from Exodus. How this first part of this verse in 25 correlates directly to the Old Testament in Exodus. But also Zechariah 8.16 says this, speak the truth to one another. Very simply, this is what we do. We are truthful. We're truthful in our walk with our husbands, our wives, our kids, our co-workers. Paul says that we are all members of one another. As we move along in our verses and as we get going through this uh, at the end of verse 25, we are members of one another. And what does that mean? Right? Remember back to Ephesians 4.4, 4, we studied just a few weeks ago. Paul told us there's one body, there's one spirit, just as you were called to be the one hope that belongs to your call. It's about unity. We are members of one body. We should be unified in our truthfulness. We cannot be unified if we're not open and honest in all of life's events. And that includes sometimes the judgmental stuff that the world likes to look at us and say, you're judgmental. To which my answer is, yes, absolutely. But it's in here, so I'm okay with reciprocating what's in the word of God. And you should be as well. So next Paul says to be angry and do not sin. And this sounds kind of weird, right? Be angry and do not sin. Now, being angry is not necessarily a righteous thing, a righteous thought, or a righteous action in any way, but you can tell that Paul, not just Paul, but the Holy Spirit, God, knows we're going to get mad at one another. It's a thing. Um, I have a problem with anger. I'm quick to anger. In my youth, I was super quick to anger. That fuse was probably not even existent. All you had to do was get it close to heat, and then boom, gone, right? So these are things we work on in our walk that we can't jump into being angry as a response to everything that makes us upset. It's not healthy. Everybody in this room is married. You can raise your hand and tell me if you'd like, what's the one time in your marriage where getting angry really quickly worked? Go ahead. Tell me now. Nothing? Crickets? Not Never? Okay, just curious. Paul might have been right here. All right, so be angry and do not sin. The word Paul uses here, and I want to use this so that we understand in Greek for anger is orgidzo, and it's used seven times in the New Testament, this word for anger. Okay? Seven times he uses this. And it really means simply to be angry, to be mad. But this verse is a little bit different from the other times it's used in the New Testament. And it's why I bring this word up. Because it's really a parallel to Psalm 4.4. Listen to this. Listen to what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 4.4. It says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder your hearts on your beds and be silent. The word angry here in Hebrew is ragaz. And it means to tremble, to be tremble you ever been that mad that you you're so mad that you tremble so i don't think it's a stretch really and i'm not going to try to redefine what paul said but it's just interesting at best to make that parallel between ephesians and psalms here when we look at it that we can be angered to the point of trembling to be shaken to your core to be so mad that it really upsets your foundation 
and it makes you question your standing on whatever it is that you're angry about and maybe even question the truth. We get mad about things to the point where we're like, what am I actually doing, right? But God, God calls us not to let that sinfulness or let it lead to sinfulness and take it a step further. Don't let the sun go down on it, just as in the Psalms. <clears throat> so what would it mean not letting the sun, the sun go down on your anger? It means to repent, to turn away from it, to turn around from it. And even more, things that are good for your heart and good for your spouse's heart and good for your marriage and good for your kids is when you did get angry, even if you're not wrong, is to apologize. It never hurts to say, I'm sorry for being angry at you. Even if there wasn't an outburst and you just need to say, I'm pretty upset with you. And I'm sorry for the feelings that I'm having. This is difficult for all of us, not just me. I know it's not. I can see some of your eyes. And I know you need to work on it. So interestingly, the second word Paul uses for anger in here, <clears throat> when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, it's a completely different word than the first word he uses for anger, which is really weird, right? Why? Of course, in the English language, we don't do this. But in Greek, they do it regularly. They have multiple words with similar meanings. And it really translates into indignation, not anger. And that can further be translated or explained as a feeling of something that provokes you or is unfair. And this is a great reminder of who we are and what we are deserving of, which is nothing. Right? Sometimes we feel like we deserve to be treated some way. Sometimes we feel like, why did somebody treat me this way? Why are they talking to me this way? I deserve better. But do you? Do you deserve better? I mean, think about that relationship with your husband and your wife, and they're speaking to you a certain way, and you're like, I deserve to be treated, but do you deserve to be treated better? Really? Has your tongue been minded as well? So we really feel like we have the power to pour out our own wrath sometimes on people, you know, our own indignation. And we're called to settle that position in our hearts and our minds before the sun goes down. So do it before the end of the day. Very simple. Verse 28 says, give no opportunity to the devil. And I think this is a pretty cool verse um, because you're going to see, if you ever study this, some different translations of it. It says, Let the, um, um, give no opportunity to the devil in verse 27. Excuse me. Um, what does it mean, the devil, this word? And this is an interesting little study. There's this theologian who's a Catholic theologian, Erasmus, 15th and 16th century guy, just for a little history. He's a Catholic priest. And he actually translated this word from devil to mean slanderer. And you'll see that in a lot of modern studies. I won't say devil, it'll say slanderer. Which could mean that we could attribute this anger to a person's own actions, right? If you look at verse 27, you said, give no opportunity to the slanderer. It could mean somebody in your life that is slandering you, slandering the church, slandering your family. But it seems Paul's very clear, even though that that word, and that word that's used is diablos. You've all heard that word before, diablos. I mean, in multiple languages, that word means devil. It's a Latin-based word, so it was Greek, Diablos. It's Latin, Diablos. It's Spanish, it's Diablos. So it means devil. So it seems like Paul's being clear, even though it's not a noun that he uses in this. In the case, it's an adjective. It's acting like a devil. 
that this accuser or slanderer is none other than Satan. It would seem that Paul wants us to understand, okay? And there's a reason why. And I think when we look at the earlier books, we're gonna, we kind of see how Satan plays out in the language. Jesus in Matthew 4, 3 calls him the tempter, right? A tempter, like a slanderer, is picking at your soul, you know, trying to get in and trying to get you to do things you shouldn't, think things you shouldn't, playing with your mind. In John 8, 44, called a liar. In 1 Peter 5, 8, called an adversary. In Revelation 12, 10, called an accuser. So in this case, similarly, although an adjective, he's called a slanderer, it's still Satan. Paul wants us to know that there is an evil force trying to work on you to get you to hate your brothers and sisters. This is why it's so easy that you quickly act to do things you shouldn't be doing. Because there's an active force trying to make you do it. It's consistent across the Bible. Satan wants you to treat each other horribly. Why? We've talked about this. How do people outside of this house right now in my neighborhood know that we love Jesus? Because the way we love each other. Because we come together and sing songs and fellowship and we will care for one another in those times of needs. We are nice and kind to one another. We break bread in communion with one another. They will see it. Now, what happens if they see us in strife with one another? It all falls on itself. It falls on its face. And that's what Satan wants. He doesn't want my neighbors to say, hey, what good things do you have going on over there? I'd like to join you. What he'd rather do is have the neighbors say, I don't want to be a part of that because those people are horrible humans, right? And that's why he is the slanderer. Verse 28, another interesting verse, right? Let the thief no longer steal. So, Paul does not call the thief to simply stop sinning. And this is interesting about this. Why would you just call a thief to not steal? Well, that makes sense. It seems sinful to take things from people that aren't yours. And he's like, just don't steal anymore, really? That's it? But he goes further. He calls the thief to stop sinning and do honest work. So this is quite a juxtaposition, right? He goes a little bit further. He's going to go further than just stop stealing and start doing honest work. He wants them to start working and then be benevolent and then give to the needy. So this is really about our position of our hearts. This is about all of us, not just people who steal things. This is about how we interact with one another as believers. To be caring and serving of our fellow Christians who need our time, our money, our love, our goods, whatever it is that we need, our service. All we are is recipients of God's grace. We do nothing for it all the time. It's not enough to just be, okay, now I'm just a recipient of all this and I do nothing and I sit in the corner. Now I'm just a little bit better and now I work for something. Now the, the juxtaposition here is the thief goes from stealing things that aren't his, not to just not sinning, but now giving away to people. Do you see that? It's a big big jump in his position as a believer. And that's the important part of this. Consider that, th that, that stretch going from a thief to making a living wage and then to share that wage. How much easier is it for you and I who already have so much to share with somebody in need? And I think this is kind of the call for us as believers. It's like, if God can take somebody that's a miserable wretch, that's a thief, sinner, and say, I can take this man from being a thief, and make him benevolent. 
That's a stretch. How much easier should it be for you, generally good person, to be benevolent, right? Should be an easy stretch. Not always for our hearts, because our hearts are hard. But I think it just goes to show the work that God does in us. So corrupt and unwholesome words. As we go on into verse 29, he talks about letting no corrupt talk come out of your mouths. Corrupt or unwholesome words should not be used. This is where you all laugh a little bit because you probably have a little bit of a potty mouth sometimes, right? I know you do. We all try not to, but it is a reality of where we live and often a reality of where we work. So I, I tried to dig into a few commentaries on this because I want to know what it means because there's no like list of words that you can't use in anybody's commentary. Like nobody writes any of those, like don't use these words and you'll be good. So to really get the full meaning and none of them just, they're all vague. None of them have like a real answer. So the word corrupt here really can mean rotten, like rotten fruit or rotten vegetables, rotten meat or putrid, but it can also mean corrupted by age and no longer fit for use. That's what Thayer's lexicon said. So I'm in no means trying to make a case for you all using cuss words regularly, like I'm a Christian and then let an explicitive come out of your mouth. But I think Paul qualifies his statement in this where he says the needs of the moment and grace to those who hear, right? So if we look at that verse, um, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such is good for building up as it, here it is, fits the occasion that it gives grace to those who hear. So we can get really legalistic and try to say that there's lots of language that cannot be used. You know, don't say this word. And take it literally, there should be no conversations that don't lift everybody up. You know, everything has to be edifying. So all we're ever doing is talking about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God, everything, everything, everything. So there's no other conversation. I mean, you can't talk about anything. Every conversation is a theology lesson. You can't talk about your car. You can't talk about a movie. You can't talk about work. So I think that's really legalistic. So where do we go then? I think we know the reality of life. We talk about work when we're at work. We talk about politics. It's a thing, right? We're going to tell jokes. We're going to communicate in a whole bunch of different ways. But Paul wants us to be aware of the situation that we're in and use those moments wisely. People are watching you. People are listening to you. When you are having those conversations, do they still see the believer that is in you? So how do you deal with your subordinates at work? How are you offering them Help, assistance, reproof, instruction. Sometimes it's judgmental. You know, the people around you are going to judge you by the way that you use your words. So it's a very general call to make sure we are situationally aware, speaking truth and love. And specifically, when you talk to people, are you being graceful? Are you giving them grace? Does it afford goodwill and loving kindness? Is that, is that the way you speak to people with goodwill and loving kindness? And do people know that by your words that you love Jesus and that you care about their salvation as well? This is part of being a Christian. You're going to come across people who you work with who you very often do not think, I wonder if that person is saved. And I think he's saying we need to be careful about the way we use our words because if those people aren't, you could definitely drive them away. So we need to be careful for that. In verse 30... This is um, a tough verse. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And um, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit, right? Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is the worst of all sins. 
Christ was clear about this, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, which is essentially denial of God, is the worst of all. It's unforgivable, technically. You, you cannot be saved if you deny the Spirit, if you deny God, if you cannot have the Holy Spirit inside of you if you're saying he's not true. But what does it mean to grieve him? And this is difficult. And again, you can read through commentaries and commentaries and get a bunch of different kind of ideas about what it is. But I pulled this up, and I think this is interesting. And this is um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's one of my favorite theologians to read. The guy is just, I don't know how the Holy Spirit worked in this guy, but the words that poured out of him just exemplify the amazing nature of the Word of God. He just had this amazing ability. You know, if you ever want to read anything to help you understand certain verses or parts of the Bible, I recommend Spurgeon. Um, grieving the Holy Spirit. This is what Spurgeon had to say, his quote on this topic. He said, He, the Holy Spirit, is grieved with us mainly for our own sakes, for he knows what misery sin will cost us. He reads our sorrows in our sins. He grieves over us because he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. And I highlighted that in this because I thought, isn't that the truth that we grieve the Holy Spirit by being such miserable wretches that we could be spending more time doing this? Because this feels good. It feels good for me. I love being with you guys. It makes me feel good when we study the Word of God together drink coffee together, eat pastries together, sing songs together, love one another. I send text messages back and forth with a couple of you regularly during the week. I like knowing you guys are doing well and I can pray for you. And I think this is the communion that we miss out on when, when the Holy Spirit is grieved by our actions or inactions or lack of loving kindness because we're not acting like a family. And the whole, that's what the Holy Spirit wants for us. He's grieved because he's like, Look, I gave you this. I gave you this. I gave you the White's living room so you can go over there and set the chairs up and drink coffee and hang out together and love me and sing about me and spend time with one another and watch your kids grow up in me. And he's grieved when we don't. Because he's like, why would you not? I gave this to you to enjoy in me. And I believe that Spurgeon really hit it there when he says this. When he sees how much chastisement we incur and how much communion we lose. See, it's not petty grief. He knows everything that we think and we do. The Holy Spirit knows everything. Everything that we think and we do. And when we're not focused on one another, it creates a disappointment in him. Because we're called to love and to serve one another. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And this is a giant verse with a big pile of, do all these things. Don't be bitter. The entire verse is directly related to the fall of mankind, really, if you think about it. Original sin. It's not like us to think that, is it not like us to think that we know better? I know, what I, I know what's best for me. I know what's best for you. I know what's best for my wife and my kids. It's easy to know what the answer is. To everything. I know better. I know how to act better. I know I've got a plan. But sometimes we forget that it's God who's the one who has the plan, right? 
When we have an attitude that we're in a position where we can carry bitterness toward or act on anger towards one another, we're basically saying that our plan of action is better than his plan. And we're going to have a more positive outcome based on the way that we act or speak that's better than God's plan for us. This is the original sin problem. This is what Adam did in the garden when God said, look, I gave you the world, Adam, Eve, you're in charge. The word he uses is dominion. You're in charge of the earth. You have it all. It's all yours. Name the animals. Name the plants. All the plants are there for you to eat. It's all yours. Just don't touch that. And all it took is a simple temptation where the serpent says, are you sure he's going to kill you? Are you sure? And in his unbelief, Adam is okay with it and goes, you know what? I can do it without God. That's okay. I don't need God to tell me what's right or wrong. Selfishness. When we put our plans above his, we're doing the same thing Adam did in the garden. When we put our actions above his, we're saying, what you have for me is not best. You're doing the same thing Adam did. Yeah, we don't think of it that way, do we? We like to attribute sometimes, like, man, if, if Eve, let's, let's be honest, it's her fault, right? If Eve hadn't have done that, maybe we'd all be okay today. Maybe we wouldn't have to go through this. Nope, sorry, guys. We do it every single day. We do the same thing when we act or speak in a way that doesn't follow God's plan because what we are saying to God is, I don't need your plan. I've got my plan, and it's better. Well, God's got news for you. It's not better. Jesus tells us in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Paul said this in Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. These are the bitter, this is the opposite of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. He's given us the answer. This is the way we act. Jesus left us with this peace, and this is it. Like Spurgeon said, we grieve the Holy Spirit, and we lack this ability to commune with one another. It hurts him because he gave us a plan. He gave us a way to love one another and serve one another, and that's what we should be doing. And Paul prays for us that God fills us with that joy and peace in believing. We're going to conclude with verse 32. And I sent that out, excuse me, in the group text this week, verse 32. So we could kind of look at what it means to be, have a right perspective. And verse 32 says this, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And I sent it out this week. I was hoping you'd ponder on it a little bit if you had an opportunity to. I hope you did anyway. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is something I need to work on daily. It's hard for me to be truly kind to people. Also because, and my wife tells me this all the time, I guess when I'm in public with people, I have a hard time actually curling up the corners of my mouth and smiling at people. I will look at people and Carol will nudge me and say, stop scowling. And of course, which my response, like most of you guys is, I'm not. But I guess I am. <laughs> I don't know how that works. But my intentions are not to make people 
put off by the way that I am, but I have to actually consciously think, be kind to people, right? I know that you can't fix your face. I've tried for years. I can't fix my face, but your words can, you know, just how's your day going can change somebody. Be kind to one another, be tenderhearted, forgive one another. You have to let, you know, I taught my kids this years ago, water off a duck's butt, right? Water off a duck's butt. And we talked about this a, a while back. And I think little Miss Riley answered the question, how much water sticks to a duck's butt? None. No water sticks to a duck's butt. It slides right on by. And in our daily walk, when things annoy us, we cannot let them stick to our feathers because they just get in there and rustle us up. We have to be kind to people. We have to be forgiving of one another. See, this is the thing. This is where I think this all comes together as Paul concludes this portion of Ephesians is when we look at the world and we look at the way that we respond to the world and then we look at the way we respond to God and what he did for us, consider this. They, the general they, the we, the people who lived in Christ's time, they hated Christ. They hated him. They hated him. He's God. And he came to deliver them from their sin and they hated him. But he forgave them. See, they beat Christ. They beat him. And if you think about the way that the Romans beat people, just in a snapshot in your mind, think of this for a second. That cat of nine tails would have dug chunks of metal and tooth or bone into his flesh and pulled it away from his back. Hands tied to a post probably and whipped probably close to death. They beat him almost to death. Probably enduring a beating many of us would never be able to endure. We would have given up. But he didn't defend himself. I mean, he's God. He doesn't even need to say the words. He could have just ended it. But he took it. He did not defend himself. You see, they killed him. They made him carry his own cross and then they nailed him to it and stood him up like a criminal. They nailed him to that cross. And instead of damning the world after being nailed to the cross, he became the propitiation for their sin willingly. Imagine holding the nail between your fingers and driving it into his wrist. And ending up in heaven. I, I, I can't imagine the picture. I can't imagine the amount of forgiveness that comes with literally putting God on the cross and then having him take away your sin. Of course, we don't know what exactly happened to all those role players that were there. But we have a picture that at least some of those Roman guards probably saw what happened at the point of Jesus' death and had an epiphany. I mean, the, the, the clouds come in and everything goes dark. You know, the, the temple has quite a moment. Large earthquake, the shroud torn, big, thick velvet. Boom, the big smash. The dead come up out of the grave. I mean, this is quite a moment in history. I would think some of those guys were having a, a very odd day, nonetheless. Some of them probably in heaven today. So just thinking about that moment where Christ is hated, beaten, and killed, how much less we are asked that we are simply kind to one another. 
him. And he died on the cross. And so he says, be kind to one another. He's not asking you to die on the cross. He's asking you to be kind. How much easier for our hearts to be empathetic towards people that are in need? He died on the cross. He's asking you to be empathetic. How much simpler to pardon the words and actions of others? I mean, he died on the cross. <laughs> are we getting it? Do we get it? He's asking us to be kind, empathetic, and pardon the words of people. The perspective is he died on the cross. Look what he forgave. How, how little is it for us to forgive the people around us? And as believers, this should create a whole new perspective in the way that we carry out our Christian walk as kind-hearted people who love the people around us and respond in a way that says, yeah, I know what he did for me. I know the cost of what he did for me. Sometimes you need to be re reminded of what a grotesque picture that is because we set it aside if you're in your car singing Christian music or you put on a Christian t-shirt or you, know, you just hold up your hands at church and sing a song. It's very easy. The hard part is the obedient parts where God says, I died for you. All I want you to do is love one another. That's the hard part for us, right? No, it's not perspective this is the easy part coming together here having a cup of coffee loving one another sharing one another's time glorifying his name singing his praises and being there for one another in communion so that we do not grieve it pray with me father we are thankful for you lord and we are thankful for your propitiation we are thankful for your son we thank you for the payment of our sins. We ask, Lord, that you would just remind us daily. Remind us daily, Lord, to be kind-hearted to one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, to be attuned to each other's needs. Remind us to commune regularly, to read regularly, to study regularly, to learn what you would have for us regularly, that we may become more intimate with you, Lord, through becoming more intimate with one another, that it may glorify you, God, that we may walk in a way that not only that walk glorifies you, but that others will see it and be drawn to you, Lord. And that is our prayer. And we ask for it in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.